I listen. And that's the thing that we've forgotten how to do is have a relationship with this incredible body of ours that is deeply intuitive and deeply instinctual and profoundly connected. We are porous beings. We're profoundly connected to life. And when we start living that way and listening even just a little bit, I feel there's a sense of grace that starts to emerge. That's Saida Desolais, one of the world's most pioneering voices and researchers into harnessing the wisdom of our bodies, our minds, and spirits to create more rich and fulfilling lives. Hello and welcome to the Uplift Podcast. I'm your host, Chip Richards. You're listening to Uplift. Have you ever considered whether you have the right to control what happens to and what you even do or don't do with your own body? Amazingly, in this day, for many people, especially women, this right or sense of ownership of self does not exist. Dr. Saida Desale refers to this right as sexual sovereignty. And unfortunately, it was the violent violation of her body's rights that nearly cost her her life and led her on the path to exploring this significance of sexual sovereignty and how it can transform every aspect of our lives. She's our guest here on the Uplift Podcast. Welcome, Saida. I am so delighted to be here, Chip. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I am really excited about diving into this subject because it is edgy. And so I just want to congratulate you for being willing to go there. Well, <laughs> thanks. I'm, I'm equally as excited and just kind of preparing for the conversation. I was feeling that edge. So I'm looking forward to kind of stepping in and, uh, and, and, and seeing what emerges from our conversation. So why don't we start with this, just the notion of sexual sovereignty. I, w- I want to hear a little bit about your story that's kind of led to the work that you're doing, but maybe just crack us open by just introducing the, the, the concept itself and, and for you, you know, what, what this means and, mm-hmm. and where it came from. Fantastic. So sovereignty first, let's start with that word, means autonomy, means authority over our domain. For some people, that would be like a sovereign country, for example. I refer to this specifically to our body, the physicality of our existence, that this is your space to have authority and um, to make choices with. I added the word sexual because it feels to me that it's a very important aspect of what we are as human beings and it's excluded a lot of the times even if i were to say body sovereignty for a lot of people it wouldn't come to mind to include sexuality and right now especially i feel around the planet what is happening with sexuality in the sex trades in even just regular life sexuality needs um let's say an upgrade, <laughs> at least right. our idea around it. So sexual sovereignty is a concept that came to me after a couple of decades of working with women directly all over the world, meeting different cultures and introducing them to this method that I did develop through healing myself, as you mentioned earlier. And what I noticed across the board, because there are different aspects in different cultures, but across the board, whenever a woman was given permission to stop for a moment everything she was doing and just take a moment to relate with all of herself and see what that relationship was about, what would start happening would blow my mind. And I started to recognize that this woman 
is stepping into full sovereignty of all of herself, but especially her sexuality. And so that's where that idea came from for me. Wow, super powerful. Uh, so I, I read in some of your work that from a law perspective, so to speak, that in, you know, in no country in the world, not even in the UN Human Rights Charter, it is it's stipulated that women have rights, have sovereignty to their own bodies. Is that, is that right? And is it the same as men? Like, yeah, what's the yeah. state of play out there? I was just really curious, is there a country, is there somewhere in the world, and maybe there is and I just haven't found it, so I'm, I'm willing to learn. If the listener does know this, then let me know. But I did not find a, a body, an organized body, that had put together rights. I know there's something to do in the 14th Amendment in, in the United States around slavery, but it doesn't specifically state in a very clear uh, language that men, women, children, so let's say a human being, a person, has the right to their own body. And in the UN Charter of Rights, you have the right to work, you have the right to own property, you have the right to get married, you even have the right to rest. But it's never been stated that you have the right to the, your own body. I think it probably those who put those rights together exist in an assumption that that's obvious. So, but it's not obvious. There is a vast majority of people on this planet who are exploited, who have difficulty, who don't respect uh, and are not respected for their physicality, for that physical space. So that's why uh, I thought it was very interesting. And actually quite a few years ago, I spoke with the UN directly, one of their departments that handles kind of like the sexual piece of humanity. And I said, I really believe that human beings, this is a, a birthright. It's not even a right that we should give people. It's something they're born with, like the right to breathe and drink water and, you know, to be here. It, the right to your own body, it makes sense to me. And yet it, nowhere has this been claimed. And therefore, I think in the human collective and how we're thinking, how we perceive, it's not present and it needs to be if we're going to shift the conversation and shift how we interact with one another. Hmm. Now, we're certainly in a time when a lot of the assumptions, you know, and, and, and even a lot of the formal laws and systems that have been established are, they seem to be breaking down in some ways. They seem to be systems that were set up for, for another time than now. And if we look into different areas of society, there often takes some a level of breakdown, a, you know, a level of deep collapse in order for something new to emerge and a new sense of clarity. And um, I certainly see this in, in individuals as well. Sometimes, you know, it takes some sort of a drastic event for us to, you know, really get clear about an aspect of our life. And it seems that perhaps the events that led you to do this work is, is, is an example of that. Could you give us a glimpse into the events that led you to this path and, 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 and why, you know, why you feel deep down that you know, sort of this work and the, the path of sexual sovereignty has woken up so passionately in you? Absolutely. I want to give you a little background because I think it's important to contextualize that I'm actually a very unusual human being. <laughs> <laughs> we already got that. <laughs> so... I was born to French-Canadian parents. Already that's unusual because French-Canadians have a, a, a very joyous and pretty much open relationship around sexuality. So that we'll just say that. 
peace. Despite uh, the religious influence of the past, that still was there. And then I was raised on a native Canadian reservation, several of them, some of the most violent ones, actually. And so I was privy to witnessing incredible amount of violence towards um, children and women. And our home was a sanctuary for those who needed to run away and heal how did you Boston. guys end up on, on in the reservations? Were your parents directly by blood affiliated, or it just happened? No, uh, we do have. We're um, we are considered Métis status, status, which means we, I have two great grandmothers that are pure Native. But that wasn't why we were there. My father was a civil engineer, and he was positioned there by the Canadian government to assist in. Um, infrastructure like roads and right. sewage right. And, and things like that so we were there to really help the standard of life be better mm. um and culturally it's a shock if you've never lived on a reservation it's kind of hard to fathom especially as an outsider so uh, so my second language after french was actually the soto language and then i started to speak english later in life so th imagine that as my background, but I still have a very healthy connection with my own body. My parents give me good boundaries, and they don't kind of shut me down as a, a sexually curious being with my own body. And fast forward to being 20 years old, I'm traveling, I'm, I've hitchhiked from Canada all the way to uh, Central America, and now I'm in the Caribbean, and I find myself a Caribbean lover. He's probably the baddest boy on the island, which was very exciting for me at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, a few like a week into our relationship, a violent act of rape happened between him and I. He wow. he raped me. You know, you don't know how to handle these things ever. When they happen, it's it's stunning. It, it's disorienting. And yeah. I, I got and you I got, were there on your own. I was there on my own. Yeah, yeah, on my own. No resources really uh, at that time. Not didn't have a lot of money, and. I had to phone home and ask my parents to wire money so that I could leave because I got really sick. By the time I got help and into a hospital and they, um, they actually did a surgery to look at what was happening in my body, when I emerged from that surgery, the surgeon said, I'm really sorry, but you have about two weeks to live. Oh, my God. So it was a very stunning moment in my young life. and. Wow. Were you back home at that stage, or were you still somewhere, you know, yeah. in South? I'd, yeah, I'd flown back to Vancouver, which is where I had been living at the time. Did not have any family members there, but I did have friends. So it was a stunning moment, and it was a frightening moment because when you're, especially when you're young, you're not really connected with your mortality. So to have it thrown in your face, it's a wake-up call in a very massive way. And to have authority, a surgeon come and say, "Well, this is what's happening." Yeah. You don't tend to defy that, but if you know me well enough, I have a rebellious streak, and I chose, no, that's not my reality. I am going to live. What do I need to do? And, and I asked the, the doctor, I said, what do we need to do in the less than 0.000% chance I do have to live? And I said, well, we need to put inhuman amounts of antibiotics in your system. And I said, fine, just do it. I'm going to die anyways. So they did that. They hooked me up. And then I got a day pass to go and meet an herbalist. So I took the bus and I had this IV tube thing you know, wrapped yeah. around me. And I, I went and she understood that I was at a crossroads, that I needed to make a choice to live or die. And she really supported. She was kind of that first touch base impact of making the choice to live. And obviously, 
you know, it's been a long time, more than a few decades since that moment. So the two weeks has turned out to be a a fairly long amount of time, and life is very precious to me. But the journey of healing from that moment forward really required a lot, and there were very few resources. Nobody really wants to talk to anyone who's been raped and violated and been told they're going to die. This it, it terrifies people, so it's a very hard conversation. It's weird how we how we re- resist. You know, it's like people genuinely see themselves as caring, but those areas we 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 resist going into them, don't we? Yeah, because we, it's almost like talking to someone about death. Like a lot of us don't want to talk about it. We don't want to say, hey, you're dying. How does that feel? Yeah. How did it feel to, to wake up and be told you have two weeks to live? No one asked me that question. It's interesting because I was also asked in a different interview, well, wouldn't you felt that your healing would have been much better if the man who did this to you had been persecuted? And I bring this up now because I want to make a, a very clear point that nothing outside of me had any power for my healing. And I I somehow claimed that. I don't know what in me claimed that, but I did. So it didn't matter to me whether the person apologized, got persecuted, or what happened with anyone, whether my friends talked to me or not. I chose to live, and I chose to really follow my own wisdom and my truth, and I did. And not only did I live, but I... I actually got to a place of thriving and loving life and actually loving sex and having great relationships that way. So, and so did, you, the, did you get that deep kind of resolve straight away or was there a moment when you can think back and go, you know, something shifted in you and went, you know what, it's what happens to that, to, to the man that raped me is, doesn't matter to my healing. And, and, and I'm making this choice to live, you know, mm. fully. Is it, can you think, is there, was there a turning point? Not really. You know, honestly, I didn't think about him much, really. The only responsibility that I felt was to write him a letter and say, I am dying of an STI. So it's PID, which is pelvic inflammatory disease. It's a sexually transmitted infection. And I said, I'm dying of an STI. You're the one who raped me. You just might want to be aware and go get yourself checked because I don't know what it's going to do on your end or if anything. And that was it. I just felt I had to be responsible. And, and then I don't know if it was the time that we were living in or just you know the conditioning that I was in my own self. But I didn't think about it much after that. There was a reclamation many years later that when I dated someone with a similar body, I had kind of a, a reclamation experience where I was re-stimulated into the trauma. Yeah. And, and so that came in you know, later, much later, but I was already in a place of empowerment by that time. And so when the trigger came, I was able to consciously participate in it along with my partner at the time and and really create incredible healing. Wow. 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 Amazing. Just uh, absolutely beautiful that you, one, that you found your way through, that you opened the way through and created that. And then that also that you can see it looking back now that, it you know, really, has guided you to where you are now. So, uh, yeah, I mean, amazing. Talk to us a little bit about sexual sovereignty in a real sense, you know. So, you know, men and women really would be in a whole scale. There'd be a spectrum of people listening from deeply disempowered with their body to, you know, fully claiming uh, ownership Mm -hmm. and sovereignty over it. How do we find ourselves in that? And, 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 you know, how do we take the next step? Yeah, I love this question. Thank you so much, Chip. 
The first thing I think that's important to say, because I brought this conversation to someone in a high-level po um, politics in the U.S., to try and understand how do we make this right, this human birthright, in the mind of you know the, the laws and the structures so that everybody is treated this way. And the person said, look, it's you shouldn't even talk to lay people about this until the structures are in place because there's no point if there's no structures in place. Mm -hmm. And I remember feeling stunned. And I went, is that the leadership that we have in this world, that there's no point for us to take a stand for something that's really important? We have to wait for institutions and governments to tell us that it's now okay to take a stand for it? No, I'm sorry, but my rebellious nature doesn't accept that as a possibility. I get that if there are laws and structures in place, it's easier. But that doesn't mean that I can't take a stand for my own body. And I have. Yeah. Wherever you're at, wherever you are at, it is my deep belief that your body is your sovereign ground. And that is something that no one can take from you and no one can give to you. We have to claim it for ourselves. And then we get to sit with, well, what does that look like? If this truly is something that I'm wholly responsible for and get to make decisions about, how would I live my life? What does that look like? Where is the line that I will draw where disrespect sits? You know, where is that line? Because culturally, we're all very different. Some people, the line is way, you know, 50 feet away from their body. Yeah. <laughs> and other people, it's, I love to be hugged and touched and massaged, but whoa, do not do whatever this thing is. And that, that's the line. You need to define where that line is. And then you need to take a stand for it and get verbal about it, get strong about it, inform your community. This is it. This is my line. Anyone go over that line, you will be hearing about that. Kind of like a lion. You know the line, right? The lion's like going to growl at you. And if you really disrespect, it's going to do other things. <laughs> yeah. So it's very important to have that line and it's self-defined line. Mm. And what do you say to, you know, women who are maybe woven into what, what we would say would be deeply unacceptable cultural norms or, or you know, mm. or, or, or mm. long-standing relationships where that line has been, you know, so violated over such a long time that it's to put a line in the sand feels like, oh, fuck, I don't even know where to start. Exactly. And that is terrifying. I have to say that um, I have had a few clients like this. There's some uh, women in the Middle East, so Muslim women, who have secretly, bravely, courageously chosen to follow some of the teachings that I put in online courses. And they do it in their own privacy. They've never shared it with their families. But somehow, just knowing for themselves that their bodies truly are their own and it is their sacred ground. They, they can't draw the same lines that we can because it could put their life under threat. But in living in that, with that peace and that knowing that they have that place that they can reside in fully instead of being disembodied and numb, they can really embody themselves and be there. It's amazing the transformation that's happened with those women. It's subtle, it's profound, and it's it's private. Yeah, wow. I I can I bet, and I can, you know, for me, just listening, it's tied a little bit to the step that you took, where you realized that the the man who raped you wasn't in control of 
your fulfillment or your healing, you know, that, that your healing yeah. was going to happen inside of you, whether he was prosecuted or not. So there's something about claiming, you know, responsibility or ownership at a level that, that no matter what's going on over there with that other person, I still know who and where I am. Uh, yeah. And I want to say something that's a very clear distinction. This could possibly trigger some listeners, but I say it with so much love and benevolence in my heart. It's a very important piece that I think accelerated my healing in very profound ways. And I have witnessed the same in, in those who've chosen to explore this idea. And here's the idea. Every single human being will go through at one point in their life an experience of being victimized. It does not mean that we have to then claim the badge of being victim and wear that badge for the rest of our lives. We have all had a moment where victimization has happened, but that moment doesn't need to define who we are in our totality for the rest of our lives. That is so important because when we claim the badge of victim of anything, now we have deferred our power in such a way that there's no way that we can actually take charge and change and create the life that we would love. And so a lot of times I say to women, you have a choice. You, you, if that is comfortable and that is right and you identify with that, that is in your power and your choice and your sovereignty to do that. But to truly live a sovereign life, there is no, it's like you have to take a step to one side. You know, one side is the victim platform and the other is the sovereign platform and you get to choose. Mm. And the truth is we waver back and forth a lot. Because culturally, it is mandated that we are victims. Yeah, it, and there's it, that sense of blame and like that person did that to me or, you know, <laughs> that kind of we feel justified, actually. We feel justified in blaming the other or holding the other responsible, but we don't realize that, that even just holding on to that actually takes away our, our own sense of empowerment. Well, here's the thing. It's, it's not wrong to do that because it is part of the healing journey to go, hey, that was wrong. That was not okay. That should have never happened, but it did. Now what? So what happens in our culture is we only take people up to the point where they, they, they've stabilized and now we've put the label of victim on them and then we go, great, have a nice life. But they're half-baked. <laughs> the, the cooking is not finished. So here's the thing that I like to say is if trauma is so intensely prevalent throughout all of humanity that we traumatize each other regularly, Okay, we've got that piece. We understand that. Now, how do we, what else is there? Because there's so many resources if we choose to transform trauma now. But what's next? And we never talk about that. And so for me, within our greatest pain is our greatest power. Yeah. yeah I, sorry. <laughs> I'm just right there with you. It's, it's amazing how many people that I know that's true for, you know, that, that some event that happened to them that was, you know, potentially the most traumatic or life-threatening or damaging to them on one level, in retrospect, they can look back on it and go, wow, that actually woke up something in me. And now the path that I've walked because of that and who I've become and how I'm helping or serving is in, in some way tied to that, but truly liberated from it at the same time. Mm, yeah, exactly. So knowing that, 
it's uncomfortable, right? It's uncomfortable to really own ourselves and to own our experiences, but it's so empowering. So if we are in a place where we're numb and we have no connection with our bodies, then the first thing I would say is if any of this conversation touches even a glimmer of hope in your heart, in your being, lean into that because it doesn't have to keep being what it has been. A very wise friend of mine, he's a philosopher, he calls our past, pastivity, as though it's like has a weight like gravity, and so that time accumulates versus passing. And he said, but that's not only what we are. Right now in this moment, in all moments to come, that's possibility. And that is different than pastivity. And if we want to lean in and get curious, who would we love to be now? And what would that look like? What would it be for you to live life on your own terms? And if you're not sure, this is a worthy inquiry. It's very, very worthy. So powerful. And one of the things you referred to just before was this notion of kind of being disconnected or reconnecting to your own body. I could imagine that just in a very basic sense could be a doorway towards healing and, and kind of reclaiming our power in that space. Mm, yes. The, the greatest harm that has happened to most of us is, is that we no longer trust our bodies. We no longer trust ourselves or one another or, or even life for some. So I say to this for all of us, the healing happens at its own rhythm. So one of the things I love to say is only move as fast as the slowest part of you. And when we do that, then every step we take, we never need to take one or two steps back. So it actually is a much faster journey, even though it appears slower. So what is your slowest part? If it is your body, if it is you know your heart, uh, thoughts, feelings, and honor that. Have a moment to cherish that part of yourself and say, hey, I got you. I know it's been hard, but I've got you and I'm here now. And that kind of self-conversation is what's needed. And it's what I see and it's what I guide, uh, I don't know, maybe tens of thousands of women, hundreds of thousands by now, have guided them through this simple act of being with their bodies and going, I'm willing, I am willing to come into right relationship with myself. Well, I love that distinction of uh, I love that distinction of you know moving at the pace of the you know the slowest part of you. It still feels like it's inside of a commitment to move forward and to heal. Uh, you know, yes. I'm not I'm not looping back into a painful a passivity uh, element of myself and just repeating that and, and having that block my my growth and my healing. I'm just taking the time to honor and heal what needs to be healed along the way. Absolutely. So you speak a lot about, and for particularly for women, about finding their erotic genius. What's on the other side, and, and how mm. do we kind of claim power in that space? Yeah, so I want to reframe the words erotic because it tends to trigger <laughs> people, and we think about pornography or you know the explicit sexual acts. So eros is really uh, imagine that which animates life. It's, it's igniting, and so we'll call it aliveness. And genius is your intelligence. It's, it's the, the part of you that knows. So it's the part of your being that knows what she needs to feel most alive. That's what erotic genius is. And it lives outside of social conditioning. 
So sometimes uh, it can be a little edgy to explore, well, what would really make me feel alive here? And sometimes that edge could be, gosh, I got to change my job. I, this, I feel unexpressed. Uh, it's just not my passion. I don't love what I do at all. Or maybe it's a friend that is um, no longer really in, in alignment with your values and you just it's just not right. And so it's bringing you down in a sense. So that could also be erotic genius because you, what you're doing in a sense is you're using your own turned on experience or being switched on, I like to say, where all of you is on board and is online and you're feeling alive as your guide. It becomes a very strong compass. I always say, you know, how alive do I feel right now? Is this choice enlivening me or is this choice feel like life taking? And it becomes a really beautiful way of discovering what is true for ourselves based on our own authentic self versus on a social mandated behavior. Yeah, great. Could you give an example of how that might play out in your day, you know, day-to-day basis, the, the I, sense of following the, the beacon of what makes me feel most alive? Yeah, I, I'll give a very funny example. So I was in Amsterdam and it rains a lot there, especially in the, in the winter. And I was there and it was one of those really rainy days and I was supposed to go to the next town to on a train to interview a woman who worked in the sex trade to help uh, illegal sex workers. And it was a very, very important interview, but the rain was, it was just so cold and it didn't feel like it. So I actually asked myself, what would my pleasure love just in this moment, which is really daring if you think about it, because I've got, you know, it's, I've got to be responsible and follow through with the interview and da, 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 da. And all I could think about is I want to stay home and get cozy, snuggle up to my man and have some hot chocolate. And so I actually decided to do that. And as I went on my computer to email the lady and say, I'm not going to come out, there was an email from her sitting there saying, please don't come out. I'm really, really sick. Mm. And so there is something really magical that I've started to witness in my life the more I pay attention to that. Now, of course, there's times where I just need to show up and I'm not feeling well and how I feel isn't necessarily the highest standard of measurement because there's times when Things are uncomfortable, and yet we're moving in the right direction because being comfortable isn't necessarily a sign of switched onness. It's a different thing. Being switched on, there's it's like riding a roller coaster ride and you're tingling everywhere, and you're like, oh my God, that was a little frightening, but so exhilarating. <laughs> Totally. And you have to sometimes move through those thresholds where you feel like, oh, I don't, I don't want to do this or I'm, I'm not up for this. But then yeah. you know, it does have a feeling when you're actually moving into it, which is, which is different than just not feeling alive in something. Exactly. So it's a sense of enlivenment. And I think that's very important. So as a general, that's the compass that I use. And I will even use it with food. It's like, what is it that my body most needs right now to feel the most alive? It could be random. It could be, you know, tonight all I want is a big bowl of fruit. And another time is I, I want like rich, brothy soup that's cooked. And like, yeah. It doesn't matter. I just, I listen. And that's the thing that we've forgotten how to do is have a relationship with this incredible body of ours that, that is deeply intuitive and deeply instinctual and profoundly connected. We are porous beings. We're profoundly connected to life. And when we start living that way and listening even just a little bit, I feel there's a sense of grace that starts to emerge. And, and I'm addicted to grace, Chip. It is such a great feeling to have grace in one's life. 
That's that's a great thing to be addicted to. <laughs> and, and I love this notion, and I experience it myself, how um, sometimes when I feel a strong impulse, like you described with the rainy hot chocolate Amsterdam, that feels like it feels like it's going against what I said I was going to do, but it, but it feels strong. It's amazing how much, you know, when you just push into that space, how often, you know, doing what's right for you, what's really right for you is actually really right for the other person as well. It's just, it's a, there seems to be a strange kind of uh, universal link that we, we don't always give ourselves access to, but it's, it's there. Mm, we don't live in a void, and I've spent a lot of time in the wilderness, deep wilderness in Africa, where you can get eaten, you know, like the big five are there. And so you, you are forced very quickly to be attuned to everything. And then you realize that your state of being is reflected back to you by everything around you. It's, it's quite phenomenal when you finally realize, oh my God, I have no privacy. <laughs> everything I think and feel is like... So obvious to everything else other than me. Um, so, so there is, we are deeply connected. And the faster we get that, and the more we're willing to actually then choose that relationship with ourselves, a connected relationship with ourselves, where we're willing to at least hear what is emerging within us, whether it's a, a thought, a feeling, or a body sensation, and just be curious. I think curiosity is the most profound healing agent for so many things. Mm, wow. And interesting, you know, this reference to nature and, and the natural world, how when we think about the, the natural harmony that exists with plants and animals, they are simultaneously doing in each moment what they need to do to survive, to, to, you know, to really be alive in a very real sense. But always with this sign of uh, deep connection to everything around them. So it's, it's, it sounds like, feels like a wonderful example to follow. Mm, thank you. So closing thoughts, you know, what's one step that each of us could take for the listener here today that's feeling like, wow, I, I'm ready to reclaim a sense of sovereignty, sexual sovereignty in my body, in my mind, to, to really follow that path of what is having me be most alive and, and, and reconnect with this vessel that is me the, in the physical form. Um, what's one step? Yeah, what I love is micro moments, Chip. I think when we try to take too big of leaps, it, it's harder. So it's a tiny thing, like like what we're going to eat for breakfast, or do we smile at this stranger or not? You know, these micro moments in life. And what I want to invite the listeners is to be more daring in those moments. And by daring, what I mean is authentic. What is true to you? And, and let that truth come out. Maybe it's, a no, it's saying no. Maybe it's saying yes. Maybe it's resting. Maybe it's really going for something. But it's authentic and it's true. And you dare into that in your micro moments. I think that that's probably the, the fastest way to transformation is to do it in the tiniest moment-to-moment -moment steps. Yeah, because I mean, how many moments do we have in a day? We can practice. We, we'll be masters by the end of the day if we. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we're laughing, but it, but that is what it means to truly live life on our own terms and, and to really claim it so fully. This is it. If you haven't faced your death, I can tell you by a person because I have faced mine. This is so precious. So how do you want to live the rest of your breath? And you only can know what's next, so the next breath. And so how do you want to live the next breath? 
What does that look like? And when we stay engaged with that, my goodness, is the aliveness available for us. Saida Desilei, thank you so much for being with us today and for being such a wonderful expression of uplift in the world. It's been a great conversation. Thank you so much, Chip. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here. You're listening to Uplift. We've been speaking with Dr. Saida Desolet, author of Emergence of the Sensual Woman, Awakening Our Erotic Innocence, and founder of the Desolet Method. She's also one of the leading authorities of the Jade Egg Practice. So if you'd like to reach out to her or learn more about her work, please just head on over to her website at saidadesolet.com. A huge thank you to Saida for sharing your story with us today, and a big thank you to the Uplift team for bringing this episode together. And most of all, thank you for choosing to be here with us on the journey of Uplift. If you've got ideas or inspiration to help this podcast or anything we do be more awesome, please reach out to us via the Uplift Podcast Facebook page or directly at upliftconnect.com, where you will also find an ever-growing field of inspired articles, videos, films, and all of the past and present Uplift Podcast episodes. That's all from us for now. I'm Chip Richards, and I look forward to being here with you next time.